We could spend a lifetime on Jesus in the Book of Mormon, and I would encourage you to do so. I would encourage you to spend the rest of your life coming to know the Jesus that is portrayed in the pages of the Book of Mormon, especially the Jesus that has been lost from the Bible. But given the short limitation of this class, we need to move on. So we're going to move on to topic number two. We'll address three topics in this class as in-depthly as we can. Topic number two, let me introduce you by having you turn to Mormon chapter eight. Actually, flip to Mormon seven and go to the very first verse. Who is speaking? Whose message is Mormon seven? This is Mormon's last chapter. Remember how it comes down to 24 people. They destroy all the Nephites except for 24, and they know the Lamanites are coming after them. Mormon has one last chance to write one last chapter. Here's Mormon's final chapter. So now go to chapter 8 and notice how it begins. Tragic. Just breaks my heart words. What does it say? I, Moroni, which means my father's gone. And I'm finishing this record. Now Moroni in this chapter says something that I think we can safely assume was true of his father as well. And this now introduces our last theme. If you'll go down to verses 34 and 35, you know what, I'm gonna bring the PDF version up so we can see it better. Seems like a good topic, structural stupidity. <laughs> fantastic article. It talks about the fact that, well, we'll save that for another day. Mormon chapter 8, 34 and 35. Now, don't you think as we read this, we're safe in assuming that this is true of Mormon and all of his abridging. From the very moment he took over and started abridging the plates, Moroni says, Behold, the Lord hath shown you unto me great, shown unto me great and marvelous things concerning that which must shortly come to pass at that day when these things shall come forth among you. I have seen the day when the Book of Mormon will be reve revealed to you. I have seen that day. Behold, I speak unto you as if you were present, and yet you are not. But behold, Jesus Christ hath shown you unto me, and I know your doings. So wouldn't you assume that that's true of his father, Mormon? So tell me, why, how was the Book of Mormon written? Given a thousand years of Nephite history, what determined what he chose to put in the book? What he saw in our day. That's astounding if you think about it. We have tailored scriptures to the day in which we live. He saw our day, identified the solution in his day, and added that into the scriptures. Remember how many times Mormon says, I can't write a hundredth of what I could have written. Well, I'm choosing what I'm choosing based on what I'm seeing in your day. So if you look earlier in this same chapter, Look at verse 26. The Book of Mormon will come in a day when it shall be said that miracles are done away. But what is the greatest message on miracles continuing? Whose coming forth itself was a miracle? What book stands as a testimony that God is still a God of miracles? So the book's going to come forth in a time when its message is exactly what's needed for the problem of the day. Do you see what he's trying to say? Now watch as that continues. He's just going to tailor the Book of Mormon to what he sees. Verse 27, what will be one of the major problems of the time period when the Book of Mormon comes forward? Secret combinations. Yet can you think of a book that talks about how to overcome secret combinations? Is there a book on earth that tells you the solution to secret combinations? Hmm. The book that has the answers to the very problem you're having. He continues, verse 28, it will come in a day when there will be great pride. Gee, can you think of a book, of all books on earth, which book best helps us understand the source of pride, the reasons for our pride, and how to overcome our pride? 
So the Book of Mormon will come forth in a day when you've got a problem with pride and it has the solution. Do you see what Moroni is saying here? Let's keep going. Verse 29, it shall come forth in a day. Now, this is fascinating. It will come forth in a day right before massive destruction. The day the Book of Mormon is going to come forth is right before massive destruction where the whole earth is going to be destroyed. Gee, is there a book that talks about massive destruction where the whole earth was destroyed and how to survive it? Do you see what the book is saying? The very problem you're going to face when this book comes forward, we have the solution to. Now that's going to become a major theme and why James is taking this class. Because we talked about it in a previous class, but the theme of the book, one of the major contributions of the Book of Mormon is to understand that the coming of Christ to the Americas is exactly like the coming of Christ to the world the second time. Therefore, the days before those coming are just like the days before his second coming. There is no greater commentary on what life will be like before the second coming than the book of Helaman. The days before his first coming are like the days before his second coming. So we'll spend a lot of time with that concept right there. The book will come forth at a time when it has the solutions to the biggest problem you face as a society. And you can keep doing, you can do a bunch of these. Verse 31, it shall come in a day when there shall be great pollutions upon the face of the earth. There shall be murders and robbings and lyings. Was there a group of people in the Book of Mormon who was constantly trying to murder and rob and lie? And how do you contend against those? So do you see what Mormon's trying to say? Moroni's trying to say. The Book of Mormon will come forth at a time when you are having all of the problems that this book was written to solve. Do you understand how astounding that is? No other dispensation had tailored scriptures. Now, in many senses, we will face the same challenges that everyone else faced. We have to overcome the natural man, faith, repentance, baptism, gift of the Holy Ghost. In one sense, we're no unlike any other dispensation. But how are we different? How is our dispensation different than any other dispensation that's ever lived? It will not end. It cannot end in apostasy. Because we're the generation that is preparing for the millennial day. No other dispensation did that. The war that began in premortal life, how many other dispensations finished and completed that war? How many other dispensations from the beginning of time finally won the victory of the war that began in premortal life? But who will? We will win that victory. We will prepare the world for the second coming. So don't you think this dispensation needs a handbook on how to do all those things? Guess what the handbook is? The Book of Mormon. Do you see what our next theme is? Now, one of the most fascinating, this is how I live my life. This is how I, this is how my brain operates. When I read the Book of Mormon, I ask What is the problem that this is trying to solve? And then I look through the history of our day and say, oh my goodness, the solution to that problem is right here in the Book of Mormon. The greatest challenges as we face are answered in that book. Now we only have a short period of time, we can't do all of them. But what I would like to do over the next several weeks is point out what the Book of Mormon says about challenges that we face in our day. So let me start with Jesus himself in the New Testament, starting a ball rolling that was meant for us. Turn to Matthew chapter 13, the parables of Matthew 13. 
What was the first one? He gives the parable and then he interprets it. One of his favorites, Matthew repeats it, Mark repeats it, Luke repeats it. Clearly, he, he spoke it a great deal in his day. The parable of the sower. So plant the seed in good soil. Now, what's the Book of Mormon equivalent to that? Where does the Book of Mormon teach the parable of the sower? That you plant a seed in good soil, you nourish it, and it will sprout, and you'll eat the fruit thereof. That's Alma 32. It's the same idea. Jesus is reteaching that crucial doctrine in our day. Okay, after he interprets the parable of the sower, tell me what, what's, what parable does he give next? The wheat and the tares. Jesus teaches about a man who has a field who sows wheat. And then while he slept, that's the key phrase here, while he slept, an enemy sowed tares. Now, what's the problem with that? Let me take you, let me do this. Let me pull this up so we can all see it. Let me take you to the Bible dictionary. Uh, give me one second to pull up the appendix. Ah, we're going to have to do it this way. Sorry. Non-PDF scriptures. Okay, in your appendix, in the Bible dictionary, under tears. Let's read. This is significant. Tell me what the tears were. You can take the time, create a connection there, but what was a tear? Read it. The word denotes uh, Darnell. Darnell grass, poisonous weed, which until it comes into ear is similar in appearance to wheat. Okay, so we got two problems with the tear. What's problem number one? It's poison. Problem number two is it looks just like wheat until the very end. So Jesus says, he sowed good seeds, someone sowed tares, and now they're growing up. Now, until they get to the very end, you don't know the difference. So what does Jesus tell them to do? What does the master of the vineyard tell them to do? Let them grow together. Now, here's what's fascinating. He just gave the parable of the sower and an interpretation. Does he interpret this parable? He does not. Nowhere in the New Testament does he interpret the parable of the wheat and the tares. So what is the wheat? What are the tares? What is this parable? Well, can I tell you why he didn't interpret it in the New Testament? It wasn't for them. It was intended for us. Turn with me to section 86 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Now section 86... And does, what do you find there? Tell me what you find in section 86. The parable of the wheat and the tares. The Lord gives the meaning, which he never did in the New Testament, right? You see him waving his arms and saying, okay, this parable that I started back then as I poked myself in the eye and lost my contact. All right, we're going to do the rest of this class blind. There we go. This parable that he starts in the New Testament was never intended for them. That means it has something to do with us. So notice, what does he emphasize here? Thus saith the Lord unto you, my servants, concerning the parable of the wheat and the tares. Behold, I say the field was the world, the apostles were the sowers. After they have fallen asleep, the great persecutor of the church, the apostate, the whore, even Babylon, the enemy that drove the church into the wilderness, that's the one who sowed the, the tares. So what is the going to sleep while they slept is the apostasy. Therefore, when they wake up and discover the wheat and the tares growing together is what time period? The restoration. 
This parable is about the restoration. Now, here's what's funny. Where's the interpretation? He says, okay, do you understand? The seeds were sown during the apostasy. Therefore, here's the only conclusion. Therefore, let the wheat and the tares grow together until the harvest is fully ripe. James? I'm just looking at verse 6 above, and it says, Not to pluck tares while the blade is yet tender, for barely your faith is weak. Don't pluck the tares. Don't get rid of them. You need to grow in this environment. So tell me what Jesus is saying about living in the latter days. Before we even turn to the Book of Mormon, what does he say? He's making a massive commentary on those of you who live in the latter days have a major challenge. Life in the latter days inherently brings what challenge? Okay, but trials by tear. So what is he saying? There are people and there are things in your life and you can't tell the difference between what's good and what's bad. Isn't that what he's saying? One of the great challenges of the latter days is tares will appear like wheat. But what do tares do? Poison. Now, I know he doesn't say this, but as I, as, I talk, as I think about that, I see four possibilities in my life. Possibility number one, I look at you and see wheat. There's Holden. He's a great guy. Him in my life would be a marvelous blessing. So I let Holden into my life. I see him as wheat and he turns out to be wheat. I got it right. Now, would you ponder how many times you've gotten it right? How many times did you see wheat? Something beneficial. I pulled it into my life and it was wheat and it did benefit me. I got it right. I judged correctly. Now, there's another positive. What's the other positive? I see tear. No way am I letting into that my, my life. No way am I going to be fooled. When I was about 13, we went camping. And while I was just wandering around the, the wilderness, I found an unopened package of cigarettes. And back in the cabin, we had some light, a, a match. We had matches. And I was tempted. I remember thinking, what's the big deal? I'm tempted. But I had this overwhelming clarity come to me that said, this is poison I want nothing to do with. I don't ever want one of those to pass my lips. I'm 53 years old and I've never had a cigarette pass my lips, not once. And I said to myself when I was 13, that is poison I want nothing to do with. And guess what it is? Poison I want nothing to do with. I got it right. I got it right. Now, how many times have you gotten it right? How many times were you smart enough to say, uh-uh, that's a poison I want nothing to do with. And you lived long enough to now say, you're right, that was a poison. People, but do you see what the Lord is saying? Okay, commentary on you Latter-day Saints. Here's the danger. Here's the mistake you're going to make. Mistake number one is you're going to see wheat. You're going to see friend. And you're going to let them into your life. And what are they going to do? They're going to poison you. How many times have you gotten it wrong? How many times have you let a tear into your life thinking it was wheat? Now, speaking of cigarettes, unfortunately, a lot of people were fooled. They were fooled by the imitation happiness. And they thought it was wheat and would make them cool. Only to find out 
it destroyed their life. They got it wrong. How many people, how many things in our society have you mistakenly saw, saw as wheat that turned out to be tares? It affects your relationship with Heavenly Father. It affects your spirituality. It affects your mental health, your physical health. So there's the warning. If we're living in that society, there's problem number one. What's problem number two? I see tear. I see enemy when in fact it was wheat. Mom. Joseph. That's just that's just Jesus. That's just Jesus, the carpenter's son. People see tear when in fact it was wheat. Now, here's why I'm doing this. If this is a problem with the latter days, as Jesus is identifying, that the sleeping period was the apostasy, and now we are growing together, shouldn't the Book of Mormon tell this in a very prominent way? Shouldn't the Book of Mormon deal with this? Now, where does the Book of Mormon teach this concern? One of the most prominent stories of the Book of Mormon. The Lord places it. Now, remember, Mormon's writing. Thank goodness we have the small plates that Nephi adds. But Mormon starts with what book? Mosiah. Mosiah is a fascinating layout because Mosiah has a center point that actually happened before this part. How does Mosiah begin? Benjamin. And then goes on to King Noah. And ends with Alma. The whole book of Mosiah has a center point in what story? Who is this? Who is the tear that they thought was wheat let into their life and destroyed them? Who is the, the wheat that they thought was an enemy and destroyed him? Abinadi. Okay. Tell me what the Book of Mormon is doing, right? The Book of Mormon is waving its arms, saying the problem you have is Noah blindness. Noah blindness is when you see we, you see friend instead of foe, and foe instead of friend. Now, the brilliance of the Book of Mormon, what we will not be able to cover in this class, and I'll leave for your homework, how do you prevent Noah blindness? Whose teachings would help me prevent Noah blindness? King Benjamin's. Whose teachings in the moment of my blindness help me take my blinders off? Abinadi's. And whose teachings help me heal from Noah blindness, help me recover from the poison I took in when I was Noah blind. Oh my gosh, that book is brilliant. And yet if I were to sequence the Book of Mormon, if I were to sequence the Book of Mosiah in order, which story would come first? This story comes first. Check the dates. This story comes first. But Mormon doesn't present it that way. And I think that's him waving his arm saying, there's the problem. There's the prevention. There's the solution to the problem in the moment. And there's the cure. Because wasn't there someone who listened to Abinadi and took the blinders off?
His name was Alma. But having been Noah blind is going to do what to Alma? Tear his life apart. Amulon comes and put the taskmasters over them. Alma's teachings are how to cure yourself, how to be cured. Benjamin's teachings are how to prevent. Abinadi's teachings are how to overcome. Brilliant structure of the Book of Mormon. So let me pose the problem. Let me tell the story, and you can begin to see the parable of the wheat and the tares in a very, very prominent place in the Book of Mormon. How in the world did they come to think he was their friend? Turn to Mosiah 11. Mosiah chapter 11. Now, do you have study material for the rest of your life? You have something to study for the rest of your life. And that's what I love about the Book of Mormon. You will spend the rest of your life and never, never plumb the depths of it. But turn with me in the Book of Mormon to Mosiah chapter 11. Under what circumstance would this man ever be considered my friend? Mosiah chapter 11, verse 2. What's he doing? Tell me what he's doing. Oh, I'm going to, I got to bring this version up. Let me erase that one. Okay, Book of Mormon, Mosiah 11. Verse 2. Tell me what he's doing in verse 2. He's taking many wives and concubines. Now, this is not Zarahemla. Remember, Zenith left Zarahemla to go down and live among the better land where the Lamanites were. That's this group. Zenith's son is Noah. So there are not a lot of Nephites here. This isn't a massive group. Where is he getting the women? They are our wives, our daughters, our sisters. He is taking our women. And we consider him a friend. One of those wives in his house is my daughter. And I consider him a friend. See, that's blindness, right? The only way that happens is through blindness. Verse 3, tell me what he's doing. Taxing them. Now, it's one thing to be taxed to get something beneficial out of it. What are we paying for? Verse 4. What are we paying for? We're supporting him in his... Do you look at this? Look at what Mormon's doing. We are supporting him in our laziness by laboring exceedingly. You see what Mormon's trying to say? How is this man your friend? Now, the commentary he's making is all of us that let a Noah into their life... How did you get fooled into thinking that drugs and alcohol were your friends or that person was a friend? You see the, see what he's trying to say? How did you get fooled into supporting this guy? He built himself many palaces. He built himself a palace. Go down to verse 14. He placed his heart on riches and spent his time in riotous living on whose dime? On our dime. He's a drunk. He built vineyards and he made wine in abundance. So let me ask, let's see if there's a few hints here as to why they were blind and thought this man was their friend. How about verse 2? There's a hint. I've underlined all these. What's the hint in verse 2 as to why I would let a man doing those things why would I think he's a friend? Because he took away all the sins in my life. He allowed, he facilitated sin. He made it okay. He convinced me and I don't have to feel guilty. He caused his people to commit sin. Okay, how about this one? Verse 7, this is a very common reason why we see friend when it's foe. We see wheat when it's tear. Why? Flattery. Flattery. How many people have let a tear in from the opposite sex who just 
knew exactly how to get in the door. Warning. Another one, verse 12. What does he do in verse 12? Interpret this. Why would they build a tower? To see the, he made us feel safe. Ooh, there's, an, there's one. Almost without fail, any tear that can make you feel, feel safe is going to be perceived as wheat. He made me feel safe. She made me feel safe. And not only that, he made wine and gave it to his people. Do you see why maybe? Now go to the very last verse. Mosiah chapter 11, last verse. Beautiful commentary. The eyes of the people were blinded. Now what's the commentary? You live in that same society. Is your, are your defenses up? Is your radar tuned in to the fact that you are surrounded by tares who are trying to pose as wheat? And if you let them in, they will, they will destroy you. And what are their tactics? Amalekai is going to teach us exactly what some of their tactics are. But do you see the warning? Now watch what they do with Abinadi. Verse 20, Abinadi came among them and said, if you don't repent, you're going to be destroyed. I will deliver you into the hands of your enemies. You'll be brought into bondage. You'll be afflicted. And what do they say? What do youth sometimes say when people say things like that to them? You're not my friend. I don't like what you're telling me. I don't want to hear this. Mom, dad, I don't like what you're telling me. And we interpret it as enemy. Who was their best friend? No one was a better friend than Abinadi. Everything he warns them about, does it come to pass? Would it, could they have avoided it if they'd listened to Abinadi? That's a friend. But what do they do? Verse 26, came to pass that when Abinadi had spoken these words, they were wroth with him and sought to take away his life. You are not my friend. Mom. Joseph. Russell. Bishop. You're not my friend. You're not telling me what I want to hear. All right, chapter 12. Please. Just real quick on 29. It says they desired to take him. And yeah. It's just like, I just think, you know, it's like to remove him from your life. Yeah. It's like make him disappear. Yep. I just don't want to hear this. That's often what we see happen with people that assume we, and players, is they end up making things disappear. We, like, we cancel them. Yeah. Or I had a friend that ended up, you know, getting in the wrong crowd and it's like, he just disappeared. Yeah. We're like, we're, you know. Where did he go? And we're like, he, he was doing good and now it's like, boom, gone. You got it. Chapter 12, Abinadi comes back and says all the things that a true friend will say when you're headed for disaster. This is what real friends tell you to do. They won't let you be destroyed. And so he says, you better repent. You're going to be smitten. You're going to be devoured. Sore afflictions, famine, pestilence. You'll howl. You'll have burdens last. Now, are all of these things true? Every one of them. Send forth hail, east wind, insects, great pestilence. I'll utter you destroyed. But what did they say? I don't want to hear this. I don't like this. Don't make me change. Don't tell me what I don't want to hear. So verse 9, they were angry with him. They took him. They carried him before the king. Now, they say what all, in my experience, one of the most common things that Noah blind people say to the abilities of your, their life is the J word. What do they say? What do you say to mom and dad? What do they say about church leaders and prophets? Noah blind people use the J word all the time, right? What is it? 
you're judging. You don't know him like I do. You're judging. And it's their excuse to burn them. And so what do they do to judgmental little Abinadi who lies to them? They burn him. They burn their friend. They burn the one person sent to save them from destruction. Now watch the tragic end of this story. Go to chapter 19. We'll skip to the, the, all, the, all, the, all the burning of Abinadi. We'll skip that. James? So I think it's interesting because in the parable of the wheat and tares, it says, leave the tares bound in the field. And I think it's like powerless. And so that's, they left a tear, what they thought was a tear, bound, burned. You got it. And here we are. And we do that sometimes with our parents. We do that with priesthood leaders. We do that with prophets and scriptures and temples. Look at what people are doing to the church. They're binding the church and leaving it because they see tear. Because they're Noah blind. Now here's the sad, here's the sad commentary. Gideon, chapter 19, Gideon comes to understand who he is, right? So what's Gideon going to do? I'm going to destroy him. He is no friend. He's our greatest enemy, and he's going to destroy us, so I'm going to destroy him. So Gideon comes to destroy him, and they start fighting, and they get up on the temple, and, and they saw the Lamanites coming. And the king says, Gideon, spare me, for the Lamanites are upon us, and they will destroy us. They'll destroy my people. Now, I need you to read verse 8. Rainy, would you mind? Verse 8. You're going to probably read it five times for me. He is not your friend. He is not your friend. Verse 8. One more time. And now the king was not so much concerned about his people as he was about himself. That's... He doesn't care. He's not a friend. Drugs and alcohol, not a friend. Not a friend. That crowd that you're hanging out with, not a friend. They don't care about you. They care about themselves. Now, here's what's the tragedy. What does he say to his people? Verse 9, what's the command? The king commanded the people that they should flee before the land. Run! So the Dunford family runs. I'm fooled by my friend and I run. The Dunford family starts to run. Now, I have 10 children. I have a 30-year-old daughter with three kids of her own. I have a, I have a son who's 26, and I have an 8-year-old. Is that family going to outrun the Lamanites? So, clearly, my 8-year-old is a problem, so I pick up Owen. I'm going to put Owen on my back, and I'm going to run with Owen. I got an 11-year-old. He doesn't outrun the Lamanite army. Someone's got to carry Owen. Well, I happen to have a 26-year-old son, no kids of his. You carry, you carry Keegan. And then I've got a 13-year-old I've son. I've got a 17-year-old son. And I have an 18-year-old daughter named Hallie. And no way Hallie outruns the Lamanite army. And no way I can carry her. So I don't know what to do. I'm running and we're falling behind and here comes the Lamanites. And so I turn to my friend, right? I look to my friend to help me and tell me what my friend says. What does he say? The king commanded them that all the men should leave their wives and their children and flee before them. And because I'm blind and because I see friend in that man, what do I do? Tell me what I do. I take my son off my back, I let go of my wife, and I run. Will I outrun the Lamanite army? Yes, because where will they stop? Right there. They will stop at my 18-year-old daughter. I was fooled by my friend. 
Now, what happens to them? They get to a clearing. Oh, we outrun them. Okay, we're good. We're good. And then what happens? What did I do? What did I do? I left my family to be destroyed by the Lamanites. What did I do? I'm going back. I'm going back. Verse 19, they swore in their hearts that they would return to the land of Nephi. I'm going back. I'm going to go save my family. And one person steps forward and says, oh, no, you're not. You're not going back. And who steps forward? Who steps forward and says, I'm not going back? And for the first time in my life, what happens? What happens in that clearing right there in the mountains? They saw him. The blinders came off and they saw who he really was. How many people fooled by a tear end up having the blinders come off when it's too late? Now, what do they see when they take their blinders off? They see a tear, right? What do you do with tears? What do they do to King Noah in that clearing right there? They burned him because that's what you do with tears, right? You burn tears. Now, what do they need right now? Tell me what they need. What do they need? Now that King Noah's gone, what do they need? They need a friend. They need someone to guide them. Oh, I know what they need. You know who they need? They need Abinadi. Oh, wait. He's gone. They need their families. Oh, wait. They're gone. This is what I hate about Lucifer. He always takes the blinders off when it's too late. You finally see that the terror was a terror when it's too late. Now tell me what the therefore what is. What's the whole point of this Book of Mormon story? Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Now we cannot cover it, but I will leave it for your homework for the rest of your life. How could you prevent being Noah blind? What do you do if you're fooled and you are Noah blind? And if you ever suffer this tragedy, how do you recover and find healing? Do you see the brilliance of the book of Mosiah? The teachings of King Benjamin will help you prevent Noah blindness. What's King Benjamin going to say? Let me just give you a, curse, a, a precursor. Tell me what King Benjamin is going to say that would prevent Noah blindness. Go to chapter 4. Now notice verse 11. I'm, don't read it. Don't read it. Just get to verse 4 or verse 11. Chapter 4, verse 11. King Benjamin says, do this. And if you do this, now go to verse 12. So he said in verse 11, do this. Now go to verse 12. I'm going to hide verse 11. Do this. Now look at what he says in verse 12. If you do this, you will always, and he gives this big long list. If you do that, you'll rejoice. You'll be filled with the love of God. You'll retain a remission of your sins. You'll grow in a knowledge of God. In other words, if I do that one thing, me and God are going to be okay. And if I do that one thing, me and everyone else will be okay. I won't have a mind to injure. I'll live peacefully. I'll render according to man that which is due. I will be a good neighbor. In other words, if I do this one thing, I will obey the first commandment and the second commandment. And may I suggest what he's really saying is, if you do this one thing, you will never be fooled by a Noah. What is the one thing? What is the one thing that King Benjamin is teaching that I would suggest is the greatest antidote to never being fooled by a Noah? 
I remember one thing, two things actually, but what do I need to remember? The greatness of God and the nothingness of man. Noah had it all wrong. Man is great and God is not. And the antidote is to remember that God is great and that man is not. Now we won't, we, there's no way we can spend the time to see the connection between the Jesus that Benjamin taught is preventative Jesus. The Jesus that Abinadi teaches is cure Jesus. And the, the Jesus that Alma teaches is heal Jesus. It's beautifully put together. But you see, the Book of Mormon was tailored to deal with a major challenge you and I have. And that is not being fooled by an enemy. Not letting a tear in. Unfortunately, I have had a front row seat my whole career of watching people fooled by Noah's. Sometimes it's another person who flatters them. Sometimes it's an addiction. Sometimes it's a philosophy. It's different things to different people. Are you wise enough to recognize what is, a, what is an enemy? And what is a friend? I taught this lesson. One time when I was at a local high school, I was at a seminary at a local high school. I taught this to my class. I taught Noah blindness to my class. I try and teach it all the time. And I had a sophomore, mind you, a sophomore, second year, sophomore, who just came out of rehab. Think about that. A sophomore who just came out of rehab. He went to rehab because of his mother. His mother put him in rehab. And I asked him, when you were in rehab, how did you feel about your mother? What do you think he said? I hated my mom. I was so angry at her. And then at the end of this discussion, I asked him, and tell me what you think of your mom today. He wept. Big, tough sophomore wept like a baby and said, now I realize that I don't have a better friend in the world than my mom. And yet, a few weeks earlier, how did he feel? I hate her. Do you see what we need to do? Are you smart enough to recognize the abinadies of your life. One last verse, turn to Joseph Smith history. Joseph Smith said he fell into errors because he didn't have the right kind of friends. Joseph was so pearl of great price, Joseph Smith history, verse 28. I love this from Joseph. Joseph Smith history, verse 28. Notice what he says here. During the space of so between Jesus, between the Father and Moroni, I had the vision in the year 1823. He's 17. He's 17. What age would that be in our society? He's a senior in high school. Having been forbidden to join any of the religious sects of the day and being very, of very tender years. How many seniors would say they are of very tender years? <laughs> and persecuted by those who ought to have been my friends. Because what do real friends do? Tell me, what's his definition? What do real friends do? They treat you kindly, and if they suppose you to be deluded, they endeavor in a proper and affectionate manner to reclaim you. That's what a real friend does. A real friend will slap you on the side of the, the head and say, what are you doing? Wake up. A real friend will treat you kindly, 
And if, you, if they suppose you to be deluded, they would endeavor in a proper and affectionate manner to reclaim you. Do real friends look the other way when you're destroying yourself? But isn't that perceived as what a real friend does? And because Joseph Smith didn't have any real friends, what does he say happened? Because he didn't have any real friends, I was left to all kinds of temptations and mingling with all kinds of society. I frequently fell fell into many foolish errors and displayed the weakness of youth. There it is. Are you wise enough? Will you hear the message of the Book of Mormon and recognize that they saw Jesus saw, Mormons saw, the positioning of this story in Mosiah is begging us to understand that they saw a major problem in our day, and that is being fooled by a tear or not recognizing wheat. I bear you my testimony that that is one of the greatest problems with our society. How many of you love someone who's blinded by, that has been Noah blind and it destroyed, it either almost or did destroy their life? This is the warning about our day. So prevent it. That's Benjamin's message. Cure it, that's Abinadi's message. Heal from it, that's Alma's message. Now you spend the rest of your life studying the book of Mosiah. I bear you my testimony that you will be so much better off when you let the, 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 the wheat in, when you clearly identify that God has sent wheat into your life and that you shouldn't be pushing them away. What opportunities are the wheat? Maybe, maybe the wheat is to go on a mission. And I've been pushing that away because I see it as the enemy. Maybe the wheat is to follow a prompting that the Lord's been impressing upon me and I push it away. Get the wheat into your life and avoid the tares. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.